Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Mo Desianian describes himself as the kid who skipped cartoons to watch the commercials. But if you look at his early years, you'd be hard-pressed to see a future ad agency founder. A somewhat nomadic childhood, Mo was born in Iran but spent much of his youth living in Germany. His family relocated to Canada and Mo would go on to study computer science at York University. The original goal was to work for Microsoft, but Mo decided to enroll in McMaster University's MBA program. While there, he won an inter-university business case competition. The prize? Admission to a CFO conference. And it had a big impact on his future. He met a member of the Tim Hortons board who also owned a boutique ad agency. He converted that meeting into his first media job before moving on to Trojan One. Mo shifted into freelancing before founding Empathy Inc., an agency priding itself on providing expertise in media, but also showcasing what media can do for business. Mo Desianian stops by to chat about growing up in Iran and Germany, starting Empathy Inc., his love for classic kung fu films, and how the Iranian authorities confiscated and erased his entire kung fu movie collection. Empathy Inc. is the next iteration of a media agency. We're an independent media agency that works with brands who want to be culturally relevant. As the president, I uh, set the vision for the company and I make sure that the business is healthy and it grows in a healthy way. Mo, thank you so much for stopping by today. I'm really looking forward to our chat, but let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from? I'm Iranian. That's where I was born. I lived there until about grade one, grade two, and then I moved to Germany right after that. And I grew up in Germany uh, until uh, until I was 18. What brought you and your family from Iran to uh, Germany? So my dad worked uh, in the uh, in the mining industry in Iran, and um, he got an assignment into the town of Dusseldorf, which if your listenerships would know where the, it is, it's right next to Cologne. And it was supposed to be a one-year assignment. Um, so we kind of moved there as a, on a temporary basis. Uh, but then the year got extended into two, and then two got extended into five, and then five got extended into about a decade. And so uh, you, you just continued living there then? We just continued living there, yeah. Um, sort of quasi-temporarily, or at least with an eye of, oh, we're going we're gonna to leave here in next year. We're, we're going to go back home next year. That was always the thing, right? Like, we're just going to go back home next year. And then I think after year... Uh, three or four or five, we kind of sat together as a family and we're like, yeah, we're not going to go back home anytime soon. So we're here now for a while. And, uh, and then, so we established ourselves a little bit more and I started to plan my future out in Germany. When you were living in Iran and you were growing up, I have to imagine you spoke Farsi. And then when you relocate to Germany, you've got to take up a whole new language and excuse my ignorance, I guess a whole new alphabet as well. Was that a challenge? Yeah, I mean, listen, it gets more interesting than that, actually, because, um, yes, I grew up in Iran, I spoke Farsi with, with and I wrote, learned initially to write in Farsi. So, yes, with the whole different alphabet. And then I 
kind of went to Germany. And I remember in the first first day of school, like my dad was working and, and my sister was a baby at the time. So my mom was watching her. And the, the day before school, my dad sort of put me on the on the streetcar uh, what was there and said, listen, you're going to get on this station. And I was like seven or eight years old. And then you're going to get off at this station and then you're going to walk this way. And then this is your school. Uh, and then you good luck. And then so <laughs> on the Monday when I went to school, I got off. I, I got on at the right station. I just went the opposite direction. Like I got onto the oh, other geez. side of the street. <laughs> and and like this is like 90s Europe, right? So I have like I don't have a cell phone. Like there was that doesn't exist in that context, right? Um so I'm just kind of like sitting there, just you know, nervous and but kind of don't recognize the neighborhoods either because I've just like moved here. And I don't know how long, but a very long time. Well, it felt like maybe hours later, it was probably only 20 minutes. I realized. I'm I'm not gonna get to that school. Like I don't know where I am. I don't speak a word of this language. Um, I had a piece of paper in my pocket that had the address, and somehow I kind of tapped the driver on the shoulder like an old lady. And I was like, I need to get here. And he just kind of looked at me. He's like, You're nowhere near this place, man. <laughs> and this old lady basically, and I started crying. And this old lady basically rode the subway back all the way with me to my school uh, because she realized I was lost. So. I kind of it's a bit of a roundabout way to answer your question. But so I did that and, and I learned and when you're that age, you learn the language quickly. Um, so when I read my stuff that I wrote at the time, it's all in German. All my thought patterns, everything was in German. Um, then when I was 16, we actually temporarily moved back to Iran for two years um, through a whole bunch of other sequence of events. Uh, and I went to an international school um, in Iran, which was then all taught in English. Um, so then, but I also didn't speak any English at the time. I only spoke German and Farsi. So I started learning basically English. So I was just sitting there with a dictionary, uh, uh, picking up English. Um, so to answer your question, yes, that, that was an interesting way of thinking, but, but, but I had to do that twice. And then, and then what, and when I was sort of 20 or so, when I look at my writings and when I was 20, all my thinking patterns, all my writings were then done in English. So I went from Farsi to German and then to English. So I've gotten good at languages is what I'm trying to say. What was a greater level of culture shock for you? Was it moving from Iran to Germany the first time or moving from Germany back to Iran the second time? Oh, that's a really good question. I think the... It got easier as we went along, right? Um, and we were a bit of a moving family too. So I did the math at one point, and from the time I was born to the time to my 18th birthday, I lived in an apartment for an average of 18 months uh, and no more. Um, even when we were in Germany or in Iran, we constantly moved places, constantly, right? Do you at some point just continue living out of a suitcase because you're like, why put my stuff in the drawer? Because I just know that we're going to be upended again in another 10 to 18 months. No, so that's a really interesting perspective because like it's not necessarily out of a suitcase in that sense, but it's more of a you have a temporary mindset. Right? Like I remember when I was a kid, I would constantly get into fights with my parents of like putting posters up in my room because I wanted a lot of posters, right? And my dad would be like, well, we're leaving here in like a couple of months. Like you're just gonna, and back then I wasn't careful to like, you know, put the the scotch tape stuff. It was just kind of a, the, 
just haphazardly pasted on the wall, right? Or nailed to the wall. So it's like, well, we're going to have to then repaint this whole place in two months. Um, so I, I constantly got into an argument over how many posters I put up. So yeah, you're right. You get into that sort of temporary working mindset of like, this isn't permanent, so we can't quite make this place a home all the time. And we're not quite out of a suitcase because, you know, two years is a long time, so you're not, you, you are unpacking and, and all of that. But um, we didn't have a lot of family pictures up at any of the places that we were. Um, the way most people sort of typically do, right? Like we wouldn't just hang stuff on the walls and things like that. Ah, uh, gotcha. Yeah, no, I, I can completely see why. It kind of reminds me of my time in university. I wasn't very big on putting stuff up because every year I was moving into a new place. So I can completely see, I can completely see why your dad was saying that to you. But the stuff that you were putting on the walls though, related back to your interests, and I want to jump into that because we've got some overlap, you and I here. So what were your hobbies or interests growing up? Most of my childhood, I was trying to sort of, like everybody else, is trying to find myself into the cultural sphere of of my of my peers, but that just changed a bit more for me and changed a bit more rapidly. So I went through phases. Right um, when I was very young, my uncle moved to Tokyo, um, and this was eighties in the Middle East. So he would bring back, every time he came back, he would bring back old Jackie Chan movies on VHS. Yes, I love those. Those are fantastic. So I would re-watch old Kung Fu movies, but I was like five or six constantly. Like until... we're talking New Fist of Fury, Police Story. Oh, Police Stories is my favorite series. <laughs> um, uh, what's the other one called? Uh, the, the Drunken Master? Drunken Master, yep. The the eagle and the snake. I forget the name. It has a long name. That was one of my absolute favorite ones. And I would watch those until sort of the tape ripped on the VHS. Like I would just rewind it forever, right? Um, so that was an early interest of mine very quickly. I, I, then I, when I went to Germany, we were a big soccer town with the rivalry between Dusseldorf and Cologne. So soccer or football became a big interest of mine for a while. So I had a lot of posters of players at the time. It was like Jurgen Klinsmann and those guys out in Bayern. Um, so I had a lot of posters of those folks over. Uh, and then it became music over time, right? Um, various genres, like rock, hip hop, and all of that. But all of my interests have kind of been my attempt to try to fit in to the cultural sphere that was around me, much like it is for everybody else, right? Like every teenager and every young person sort of tries to fit in with their peers. Uh, it's just a different dynamic when when sort of the, the environment around you kind of shocks and changes every couple of years, um, right? Because like if you had a if you had a more stable. Uh, life you would just find your interest and then that would be it right like you, i like swimming like my wife is like that she was very much into swimming right and so so she hung out with the swimming crew and went to swim meets and that that was her thing um but uh yeah so for me it was a bit different did you have to draw back some of those interests when you went back to iran for those two years just knowing that is it's got a much more conservative culture I have to imagine I, some of that popular culture that you were interested in or that Western culture from Germany that you'd fallen into couldn't come with you or you had to be a little bit more discreet with it. I had the most devastating experience of a 15 year old. I, 
around that. So I had the biggest um, collection of VHS uh, of Kung Fu movies um, that I think any one of my friends, right? It was hundreds of tapes, hundreds. Anything from old Jackie Chan to old Bruce Lee to Jean-Claude Van Damme to, to, to anything, right? And when we moved back, I had to take it all back. But you're not allowed to really take VHS tapes back. And so we would kind of hide it in the suitcase and stuff like that. My mom would try and do that. But then we think it got caught. And we had this box of VHS tapes, like this massive box that they had sealed. And it was sitting in our in our in our house. And we had to then the deal was we had to bring that box to sort of whatever department so they could discard the VHS or erase them. Uh, and we couldn't break the seal because if you broke the seal, then that would be illegal and then you would get in trouble for that. So for a week or so, I was just sitting with this giant box of all of my prized collection and I didn't know what to do with it because I couldn't open it. And eventually I had to go drop it off and they basically took a magnet to all the VHS. Oh, and wiped it right out. Wiped out all of my Kung Fu movies. If I had known that the internet was going to be a thing and I could just YouTube any of those movies now and just watch them, um, and in hindsight, those VHS would have been entirely useless in this day and age because I wouldn't have digitized them. But just as a 15-year-old, like I spent years collecting those, right? Um, it was just devastating. So yeah, there was a there was a whole lot of that. But then, but then, you know, life finds a way. Like we we had access to everything back home, um, just sort of not super out in the open, right? So I made friends and friends knew people who had like DVDs and. And eventually I got it, all of it back and and I listened to more music and more movies than I ever cared to. But but it was just done in a more um, discreet way. So did you have any influences growing up, like anyone who you look up to? Because based on your passion for Kung Fu films, especially the classics, I wouldn't be surprised if Jackie Chan was in there because I've always felt that Jackie Chan is kind of like Hong Kong cinemas or just Kung Fu Kung Fu films answer to George Clooney or George Clooney is maybe the answer to that because he will write, he will write, he will produce, he will act, he will do all of his stunts. They're done in camera and it's just amazing what he does and he doesn't get enough credit for it. And I also say that one of my guilty pleasures and it was my, I want to say it was my first Jackie Chan film that got me into some of his classics was Rumble in the Bronx. Rumble in the Bronx was one of the best movies he's ever done. And didn't he like break his leg halfway through the film and like they made a custom pair of pants for him that was it was a around sock his cast? That, it's a sock that goes over the cast and it matches oh the, his other shoe. But yeah, he did. It was either his leg or his ankle when he was jumping from, I think he was jumping from a bridge onto the hovercraft. Right, and right. That's what happened because they capture that pretty thoroughly in the, because you know how he does it in the end credits when he's producing a film, he'll show everyone behind the scenes of right. the stunt. For sure. You look, at that, you look at that and go, oh my God. Oh my God. Rommel in the Bronx was about to be my first ever movie that I watched in a the theater. And then it wasn't an end up being Space Jam. <laughs> because, and I had this thing planned. Like, I it came out, um, this was again in 90s Europe. It came out. I was the biggest fan. I had watched like all of his movies up until that point. I couldn't believe that they had Jackie Chan in theaters. All my friends were like, who is this actor? This doesn't, this was, it was his breakthrough Hollywood movie, right? Um, so like he, he wasn't in theaters before that. And all my friends were like, this is not a thing. And you can't, anyways, it came out and 
I had it planned. I, I called my dad. I'm like, dad, you got to take me. And because it was like, you had to go with an adult. Um, and he's like, listen, you're like, I think it was 16 plus at the time in Europe. And I was 15 or maybe it was something like that. So I was just like, just, just shy of the, the age I could go with. And I'm like, yeah, but it's going to be fine. We're going to go. And you're just going to talk to the guy. It's like, he's my son. It's okay. And, and in Europe at the time also didn't have like parental guidance. Like you couldn't just like walk in with your parents. You just had to be that age. Um, so, but I was like, you can just talk to the guy and we can do it. And, and then we went and my dad tried his bed. God bless his heart to talk the guy into it. And the, the usher was like, nope, no way. You are not getting in this theater. There's just no way I'm letting you in. And I was just so heartbroken. Uh, I ended up watching it on like VHS like a couple of months later. But yeah, it was it. I was about to be my like first like big theater movie that I picked myself. And I went anyways, we went Sonic Space Jam a about later. You know what I love about that film yeah. is that all the Asian actors are speaking their native tongue. I'm not sure what it is. It could be Cantonese or it could be Mandarin. And all the yeah. non-Asian actors are speaking English. And so they dub, I mean, they do the dubbing for the appropriate audiences. So all the Asian actors get dubbed over in English. But that must have been so difficult because you're acting out this scene and you've got Jackie Chan right. speaking maybe Mandarin to you and you have to respond back in English. And what I found really interesting because I picked up the DVD. It was one of my first DVDs I ever bought because I loved it in the theater when it came out in the early nineties. And one of the interesting things I'd learned about that DVD was, is that Jackie Chan's command of English was very poor when that film was coming out. So they had someone else do the English dubbing for him. (laughs) But for the DVD though, but for the DVD, he redubbed his lines in English. So that guy just kind of got written out who did the original dubbing. And I thought that was pretty interesting that they kind of rewrote it for that. But absolute guilty pleasure of mine. I love how Vancouver, even with its mountains in the background, stands in for New York yeah. City. <laughs> like it was just, it was just fantastic. So, but we're, we're getting off topic a little bit. Which, twin Dragons, I want to say, is my favorite modern Jackie Chan movie. The one where he has a twin and one of them is a pianist. Oh, I haven't seen it, but I am familiar with it. Yes. It, it, he got like later in his career, he got more like he got a bit more away from Kung Fu and more into comedy Kung Fu-ish. Yeah, so Rush, Rush like, Hour is a great example of that. Right. Yeah, exactly. So he got more like the, the, the Kung Fu more was more like slapstick comedy funny and the fight scenes weren't as intricate anymore. Um, but it was just it was just a funny movie. And it was it was very physical comedy. Right. It was extremely physical comedy. So um, that was sort of his early work around that and, and that was the kind of work that came out it was it was all done in hong kong and stuff but like it started to come out sort of to the west a bit more and got more popular because it had the it had that appeal to the mass audience and it wasn't just because like his earlier work was just pure fighting right it was just uh it was just acrobatics it was like an hour and a half of, of acrobatics that's all it was but yes you're right we're getting sidetracked sorry <laughs> no 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 it's all good so would we say jackie chan someone you looked up to growing up or is there someone else there? Yeah, I think from from a movie perspective, yeah. I don't know. I don't necessarily have a lot of sort of people, individuals that I look up to. I just kind of more look at people who've done similar things to me and how they've done it, right? I don't necessarily have sort of um, one or two people that I go, like, I would like to do that. Or it's it's more... 
it's more situational. Like in business, it'd be someone else, and in 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 arts and in, in family, it'd be someone else, uh, and so on. So, yeah, I'm not giving you a really really good answer on this. I know, but um, it's just Jackie Chan, really, man. There's no one else. And given your passion for uh, for cinema, is it any surprise that your first job ever was a theater usher? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I jumped on that job as quickly as I could. And so like, but also I was, I was like 18, right? Again, I was like, I lived in Iran and I came, I came to Canada when I was 18, right? So I had no reason to have a part-time job at 16 or so, because that just wasn't the norm. Like there weren't, there were no part-time jobs in, 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 in the Middle East like that, right? You were a student or you were working, like nobody does that, right? So, um, so yeah, when I came here, the first thing, like I just needed to make some pocket money, um, and uh, and a friend of mine was working at the theater down at Young and Shepherd here in Toronto, and uh, and he said yeah, we're looking, and I was like yes, theater of course. That that was the one thing that I would like. I jumped on it so quickly, and I loved it. I loved that job, even though it was just an usher, and even though I was just ripping tickets. But I love being around the movies. Well, there are fewer of those jobs now because, I mean, if you go to a modern movie theater, I think they've got one person selling tickets. Everything else is just completely automated now. It's kind of sad. I'm like you. Going to the cinema is quite the experience. I enjoy it wholeheartedly. It's not a throwaway thing at all. It's just an experience. It's an art form, right? Like you go, the popcorn, the pop, the the previews, the, all of it. It's just part of the movie going experience. Like it's re- I know you can watch whatever movie you want on, on, uh, on TV or even on your phone for, you know, for, for all that matters, but, but it's not the same. It, it, it's, it's the whole evening, right? It's the whole evening that you go out. It's the anticipation. I even miss waiting in line in theaters, right? Like you wait in the lineup and you just, you're excited to see the movie, all of it, all of it. Well, they've got assigned seating now because that was the allure. It's like, okay, we're going to open the gate and everyone's going to run to their favorite, their favorite row. You're going to throw your jackets down and go, no, my friend's here. They're just going to get popcorn. And now it's like, nope, you look at your seat, just like you're at a baseball game and you just take it. So yeah, they, they took that rush out of it, but I have to imagine, and you can let me, you can let me know if this was your experience because you were working that side. It caused a bit of mayhem. There were probably a couple of moments where you had to go into theater and be like, ma'am, you're holding eight seats. We need these people to sit down. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. No, you, it, you didn't come with eight people. Logistically, it was a, it was a sort of a nightmare to manage. Right. And and we were kids too. Right. Like we weren't sort of professionally trained, whatever we would get. You get all sorts of people, right? Like people coming, holding too many seats. When it got cold, you get a whole bunch of uh, people who just want to stay warm because uh, they didn't have shelter. So that was another sort of an issue. Um, so they just kind of even buy the ticket and just go sleep in the theater. Um, yeah, I mean, people would fight overseas and then we would have to break them up. But we were kids and we didn't know how to break that up. So, yeah, no, logistically, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But um, but nonetheless, the experience is nice, right? And I haven't gone to a theater in a while, obviously, because of the pandemic and all. But um I think I made a point of going to see Top Gun. Do you remember the last movie you saw before the pandemic? Oh, last movie before the pandemic. That's a good one. Yeah, for me, it was The Gentleman. Guy Ritchie's The Gentleman, and it was February of 2020. And then literally a month later, we weren't going anywhere. I thought that was on Netflix. 
Oh, it's on Netflix now, but it was in uh, it was in cinemas. It was released oh, really? just at the tail end of 2019 and early uh, early 2020. And then, yeah, he he got in at the right time to get his money back on that nice. film. And then everything fell apart in the world. Oh, okay. No, I didn't know that. I saw it on Netflix, right? Um, no, I don't remember. Now, like my mom and I usually do do TIFF really big. Um, she's also very much into movies. So that would have been the year that I sort of the last year that I did TIFF in a meaningful way. Um, so she just takes a couple of days and watches two or three films a day. Uh, and I kind of, I try to join her uh, for as much as I can uh, and time allows. Um, but yeah, but we also had like kids just before the pandemic. So it's like life just got busier. So I haven't mm. really been going to the movies as much as I would love to. Um, although I gotta say these days, I just go to the VIP stuff just because even when yes. the VIP, even when the VIP wasn't there, even as an adult and not just as a kid, I, and this is, this is me sort of to admitting to very criminal activity, but I would, uh, I would sneak in a beer into the theater just because <laughs> I like, I like my beer with my popcorn. I, that's just, that's just part of the experience for me. And the kids would always give me a hard time, like the ushers and stuff. And I would just like, I'm a grown person now so i just look at him like listen son this this is happening there's nothing you can do about this um but now that ever since they had the vip experience i, I the obvious i choose it only for the fact that i can have my beer and popcorn at the same time someone best described vip to me and i've done it as well they've said that it's like flying first class for the first time you just can't go back to coach exactly right like it's comfortable and you don't have to like yeah and then you can get a nice pint and you can get your popcorn the, the 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 seat service isn't the big sell for me like the fact that you can order when you're sitting down that isn't that and the comfortable seating isn't even that big of an experience for me either it's just the fact that i can i don't have to put a bottle of beer in my pocket <laughs> and fight with the door guy <laughs> because i win that like right like he'll be like i'll call the manager i'm like you call whoever you want this beer is coming in with me oh, yeah. <laughs> Hey, I didn't ask you this, but what brought the family from, I assume it went Iran, Germany, Iran, and then to Canada. So if, if that was the order, what brought the family to Canada? Was it your father's job again? No, at the time my dad had quit his job, right? So um, there was a bunch of sort of stories around like why we moved back to Iran and, and, and a bunch of uh, complications there with his job. But then after that, he sort of, he sort of quit. Uh, and we had, I wanted my, I wanted my education in English, right? So I applied for university. So I did my, um, I went to international school. I got my IB diploma, which some of your listeners might know what that is. Uh, explain uh, it to us, uh, just in case there's someone that doesn't know, like, I, I don't know what the IB diploma is. I, I've got some assumptions, but best yeah. to hear from you. Yeah. So the international baccalaureate is a, it's sort of an internationally recognized diploma, uh, out of high school, which it's a very, it's a two year rigorous program with its own systems and grading system and all of that, but it's, it's widely recognized internationally. So almost every university anywhere in the world will have sort of admission criteria for the local grading systems. And they will have admission criteria separately for the IB track. Um, so if you hit a certain sort of grades, in certain recommendations, you pretty much can apply to whatever um, university you want in the world, provided you meet the language requirements, right? Um, it's a very, it's a reasonably competitive program too. So like the top of the class in the world, 
they get snatched up by top universities. Uh, and it's centralized through I think Switzerland. Uh, it's a pretty rigorous program. So like when, when you do your final exams, they like DHL will come like drop off your final exams and the DHL guy will like wait outside and they'll package it, seal it, send it back to Geneva. Mm, um, okay. so, it, so it's very strictly court controlled. Um, so that's kind of that's the diploma so i did that and there's only in, in the middle east like here there's a bunch of schools that offer it but in the middle east like in iran there's just one school that offered it the international school i want to do my education in english so i applied for um i applied for york uh and waterloo and a bunch of other ones uh and then i i applied for i think berlin as well uh anyways york gave me like a scholarship to to come down and um and so I came here kind of first. Uh, my parents had been toying with the idea of coming to Canada because uh, I didn't want to be in Iran because, you know, the country is just volatile, as you can see now. Um, and Canada was a good option at the time, too. So at, at the turn of the mil millennium, that Canada was sort of had a positive immigration policy, and it still does, actually. And uh, it was English speaking and, and so on. So there was a whole bunch of sort of check marks that, that it hit so they had kind of separately applied for that too plus then i got the i got the admission and scholarship to york so it was just kind of a no-brainer so i came here first um for for my studies and then they followed me a couple of years after um and i then my sister got into u of t and and so they all just kind of moved here that way so it wasn't sort of a one particular reason like one straight line reason it was sort of a combination of a bunch of stuff that happened and made this made kind of a very attractive option was there a bit of educational culture shock landing at york university compared to some of your other academic experiences both in iran at the international business school there and then even what you even what you did in in uh, germany as well the big shock for uh for me at so my first year was extremely extremely easy for me right because i was i was a very studious type of person and partly because just family pressures because that's what you do uh and partly also because that was my ticket to getting out of the country and, and building something so i had to get good grades uh so the first year was easy right like i i came to york and i was like i already know this stuff like i already studied half of this stuff so Year one was a cruise. Um, it started to get really tough. Year two, year three, um, where I got a little bit, a little bit more arrogant. I was like, "Yeah, I know this stuff," and then I was like, "Oh, you no, know, no, I don't know any of this." Uh, <laughs> and then it got it got dicey. By year three, it got really dicey, and I had to really pick it up. But but um, year one was really easy. Like I was, it was a significantly lesser workload to that. I've heard that from a lot of other friends of mine that have done computer science because I, I had some friends when I was at Brock University that said similar things. They're just like, you know, year one, not too bad. Year two, of course, it's going to be a little bit harder. But that they, they said that in the last two years of the program, it almost felt like a different program, like the pressure yeah. had turned up considerably. Yeah, it get it, the program gets harder. Uh, I don't, and this was like two decades ago, so this might have changed at this point. But the program turns up quite a lot by year three and four it's it's a completely different program and you can see that in class sizes too right first year 
comp sci classes are a couple hundred people. And by the time you're in third year, you're looking at like 10 people in a class. Yeah, it's true. Everyone's pivoted into like a general arts degree at that point, just to Basically. salvage just to salvage their first two years. Basically, yeah. So the, the ones that are left at the end of year three and four are are they're not a lot. So um, it gets and it gets a lot more difficult. So. And so after that, though, you graduated and then you re-enrolled back into school. You applied and you got accepted into McMaster's MBA program. Why pivot away from computer science? Because if you've got this full command of a program that a lot of other people couldn't make it into, couldn't make it past their third year on, why not continue it further? Like why pivot into business and why concentrate on marketing when you were doing your MBA? So my dad wanted me to go to business originally, right? Like he's a businessman, right? And, um, and the reason I went to ComSci is back in the nineties, I had this vision that I want to work for Microsoft because Microsoft was sort of the hottest company, right? Um, at the time, this is obviously pre Google and pre Facebook and all of that. Right. Um, and I had taken sort of, I tried really hard to get into that comp sci program or any of them. And because I had tried so hard, I didn't want to quit. But I wanted to see it through and I saw it through and I got, I got my degree. I did reasonably well. Like I wasn't sort of top of the class or anything, but I did well enough. Right. And I got a job, and I don't remember where it was now. It was just sort of a very quick one of those like three week jobs at a small software company um, to be a what was called a tester at the time, right? Like a QA analyst, right? And honestly, within within a month, I was like, I can't do this. This this is not a thing that I ever want to do. Um, so I kind of completely stopped, quit the job, and then I floated for a while. As in, like, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, right? I kind of got odd jobs here and there. Um, then at the time, my dad's like, listen, I have, I, I've been doing a bunch of work with sort of, um, with uh, with China, and I know a bunch of people there. Um, I can introduce you. Maybe you can do something there. So I was like, okay. I, he introduced me to him. I scratched up sort of whatever, whatever savings I had or whatever credit cards I had, and I, Flew out to China trying to make something work there. And so I lived there for about two months. Uh, and that fell on its face. Like that just didn't work. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I was more into sort of going to the restaurants and the bars than I wasn't actually getting anything done and seeing China. So I was completely distracted. I didn't, I had no vision for what was even possible. So after two months, a whole bunch of sort of ill money spent, I, I kind of came back and I'm like, okay, now what? Right, uh, and and then so I started going on this sort of discovery of what I wanted to do, what are what are my passions, what do I like, and I I don't know how, but somehow I landed on this idea that I I want to be in advertising. It must have been through many many conversations with sort of friends and, and all of that, but I just kind of landed through this idea, these memories of like I had a good relationship with advertising when I was growing up and I, I, I needed to be in that field. And I got really interested into what ad agencies were doing, like this whole world of, of making advertising, like sort of how the sausage is made. So in my mind, I was like, if I'm going to go down this advertising path, and I, I know nothing about the industry, like absolutely nothing, right? So in my mind, I'm like, if I'm going to go down this path, um, I have to know business. Like this is the business of, selling businesses, I guess, or selling products. That was how it was in my mind. 
So what better way to learn business but to go to a business school? Huzzah, my dad was right. I've, you know, and then I called him. I'm like, I'm going to go apply for business school now. It's like, good for you. And then I looked into it and like no business school would take me because I had no work experience outside of like part-time jobs. Then I looked more and it was two universities, Waterloo and McMaster that took co-op. Uh, which is sort of no experience MBA, but they allow you to gain experience as you go along, which was kind of a newer concept at the time. But what I needed was a really good GMAT score. So I just buckled down and, and hammered my way through the GMAT for a couple of months. I took every course, I bought every book. I just kind of like locked myself in, the, in my apartment and just studied. Uh, and I, I did reasonably well in GMAT and I applied and yeah, and then that's that's how sort of the MBA thing came about. And, and when people would ask me, what do you want to do when you get out of the MBA? I would say, I want to own an ad agency. That's what I want to do. So you had that vision right from the beginning. You're like, maybe I've got to gain some experience elsewhere, but I will be on my own and be running my own ad agency at some point. Oh, yeah, that was absolutely the, the, the sort of single-minded focus. Uh, when I decided, when I came out of computer science, and I decided that this is the path I want to take. It was like, this is the path that I need to take now, um, which, you know, and, and people always tell you, they're like, oh, well, maybe you should explore other stuff. There's other careers. I'm like, nope, I'm, I tend to be stubborn. <laughs> so I was like, no, I, I'm really, really infatuated with this, with this industry, with ad agencies. I'd, I'd love to be a part of that, that machine that makes advertising. And I want to make it. And it seemed like Mac was a good choice for you because your co-op rotation landed you at Nortel, Simcor, and Volvo. But here's where it really kind of kicked your advertising career into high gear because you got the opportunity to do a business case. And it was in a competition that I don't think Mac had ever participated in or maybe they hadn't won. So take us through that and how that kind of led you into, I guess you could sort of say your first media job because that led into a connection that led you into landing at a boutique advertising firm back in 2000 um 2008 when i was at mac mac wasn't doing a lot of case comps or they were and they weren't doing super well and there was this one case competition it was it was sort of a big one for the school at the time um it was the um, the Financial Executives International, they were called. So it was a finance case competition. It was actually a very fascinating one, too. So what they would do is they would bring a big company, um, like a large public company, and and they would have their board of directors or the top executives meet with you, with all the schools, in a hotel, I think it was at the Sheraton, if I'm not mistaken, downtown. And they would present a sort of fake business emergency right like oh this is happening and, and and how do we solve it and then you had exactly 24 hours to go solve that for them and they took away our phones and and our like internet connection and they booked us in a hotel room they're like you guys figure it out and then if you if they like your solution then they would give you sort of an addition to that problem and then you had another two hours to solve for that so you're really going on sort of 36 hours of case comp and you're trying to sneak in some sleeping in between uh, but that's really the the, the case comp. It, it starts on a it started on the day, or I think it was on a Friday, if I'm not mistaken, and then it finished by the Sunday or something like that. It was a weekend thing. Um, so we had never um, we had participated. The school had participated, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, and but they hadn't gone too many places with it. But then, sort of 
my friends raised their hand and they wanted to do it because this was in the financial sector, it was the financial executive. So, you know, that opens up a lot of doors. But I was at the time, I was also like a really good sort of presenter and a, and a good marketer. Like I had that kind of reputation. And so they tapped me on the shoulder with my roommate and said, listen, can you, can you help us out with the presentation? And can you be part of the team? And I said, yeah, of course, it sounds like a lot of fun. So. Um, so we went in and um, rest in peace, now, uh, Dr. Paul Bates, who was the dean at the time, coached us through it. And he he passed away just not too long ago, just a couple of weeks ago now. And so we went to his office and he co- he coached us through all of this. It's like, how do you present? How do you deal with a board of directors? And we're kids, right? Like we have, I have never met like a board of director of anything, let alone, you know, a notable company. Like we had just learned about what board of directors were like the other week, you know, so it was very fresh. So when it was Tim, it was Don Schroeder and his team at Tim Hortons at the time and they presented and this was just at the heels of the Maple Leaf food, uh, uh, food outbreak sort of. The Listeria uh, outbreak, I believe. The Listeria outbreak, yeah. yes, exactly. So it, it was kind of a similar case. Like, oh, we found out the contamination in our coffee, something like that. And, and so we... we we went through it and we stayed up all night and we did the thing and, and, and we won. We won and, and, you know, at the time, like Ivy obviously was a big, big business school and they did really well in case comps and we beat them out and and, and it was fantastic. And he got us a bunch of notoriety and we went to the sort of the awards gala and dinner and, and there was a lady there who, uh, who ran a boutique uh, ad agency, who, which isn't around anymore. And she was like, so what are you guys doing? after after school and all my finance friends were like yeah i have i'm on bay street and i'm in scotia and i'm at whatever whatever and i was like yeah, no i'm in marketing and i don't know what i'm doing i'm just here to help out it's like you should come interview i'm looking for someone um so i i ended up working for her um it was a very boutique sort of three-man operation um but that was sort of my first jab at uh at uh, at advertising and it all kind of worked out really well that way from there, you moved to T1, a very, very, very prominent agency in the sponsorship, media, and marketing field in Canada. Yeah, there was a couple of shops in between, actually, because what happened was I quit. I quit the shop. Um, it was called Red Wheel. I, I quit that shop after a year. It just wasn't working out for me. It was too small. I needed something bigger. I went to another shop. Um, they went under, actually, um, within six months. Uh, they had a large client and the, the, they lost that client and the, it was one of those like one client's type of shops right so yeah I'm familiar with those. It, it just wasn't working um and then i interviewed with uh with the t1 folks uh, at the time i'm working on the canadian tire program with jonathan taves they were doing youtube content uh, with Jonathan Taze and Canadian Tire. So this was like early days of sort of content marketing and and that kind of stuff. So and and I was I had a digital background because I was in computer science and and I knew all of that. So I kind of went in as a coordinator to help them with that with that program um, over time. So that was sort of my first start with uh, with those folks. It was a it was a different experience, right? Like because it's like more sponsorship. Uh, and it's and it's funny because like I'm in now I'm clearly in the media business, but at the time like it was all very vague, right? Like I didn't have a good understanding of the separation between creative agencies and media agencies and sponsorships. I was just like, ad agencies are cool. I'm just going to go into as many of them as I can to figure out how this thing works. 
that was my mindset, right? Like I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know paid media versus earned media and how that works versus that. I was just like, oh, this is kind of neat. I'll go do that for a while. You're right. It does get broken down to a lot of subdivisions, and we don't really talk about that that much, at least forward facing. Like anyone on the outside, like you mentioned, will look at that and go, yeah, advertising, that's it. They probably think that you place the media, you create, you do the creative spot, all of that in one shop. They don't realize that they're their own separate industries. Right. I mean, like the the thing that I say to people in the industry is like when my neighbors ask me, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I'm in advertising broadly. Right. Like, and and I'm not going to get to explain sort of, well, we're actually own a media agency, which is different than a creative agency, which is different than a PR agency and a sponsor agency. Like it doesn't, you know, to the, uh, to, to your neighbor, to the person outside of this industry, it doesn't matter. It's all just, you're an ad agency. And then they'll inevitably ask, did you work something that I've seen recently? And I'll give them a campaign or two that we've worked on. They're like, oh, cool. And that's about it, right? <laughs> but yeah, in the inside in the inside track is very specialized. But from the outside, it's all just ad agencies, right? Which is kind of like any other pr- profession too, I guess. I'm yeah, sure there's true. A, I'm sure I mean, there's you can use farming accounts. as an example. Farming, you could use it as an example. You're like, I'm a farmer. And they're like, oh, that's great. But someone might think you're growing vegetables, but you could be a cattle farmer, but you're just, you don't want right. to get into the weeds about what you do specifically. Right, exactly. There's a bunch of farmers. I'm sure there's a different types of accountants and different types of, et cetera. I think the only profession where that stuff is actually relevant is like physicians, right? Where, yes, because you're, you're just like kind of interacting with people. Um, so that matters or like similar similar professions like that but you know if you tell someone i'm a uh um, yeah farming is a really good example like that's kind of doesn't matter what you farm you're a farmer you're a farmer you're in advertising you're in advertising that's what people care you had quite the career though as an independent consultant or a freelancer was that scary going out on your own because you're really living and dying by your own sword at this point well that was my first iteration of trying to start something on my own right i mean we i got to a point where very quickly people would call me like my network would call me to solve specific problems and i in turn then had a network of people who can help me execute against that problem right like when facebook advertising was a thing when search became more prominent when programmatic became more prominent people would call me like hey do you know how to do this programmatic thing and i would be like yeah, I do. And I would do it. And then I would sort of find a friend that I knew through just my work in the past. Be like, hey, can you help me out with this? Uh, and we can split. And then that would be sort of, that was the first iteration. When, when like, remember when Facebook was making like a ton of apps or everybody was making apps for Facebook? Oh yeah, especially the gaming apps or, oh, or, or like little ones or quizzes like, you know, what vegetable are you? And you had to give up your information in order oh, to gosh. do that. This is like, <laughs> this is before privacy was an actual concern yes. <laughs> and we would just make apps for everything like i made victor i think i made sort of a dozen apps that are just blogs that's what people would do right they'd be like oh we have a blog where do we put it do we put it on a website? nobody goes on a website anymore let's just put it in a facebook app and we're like this doesn't make any sense but sure i'll make an app Right, so I would have like a bunch of coder friends, but guys, we'll make another app. Um, and agencies were just jumping on that bandwagon, right? Like agencies made Facebook apps, like like anything. So 
Um, but they would, the thing is like most agencies, and this is the way the industry works, like they would go into the client's office and say, we can make your Facebook app. And they're like, yes, this is a great idea. We should do it. And then they would come out and be like, okay, does anybody here know how to make a Facebook app? Um, and then it would call sort of people like me, like, hey guys, do you know how to make Facebook apps? So, um, so that, that was kind of what happened, right? Like I was just getting these calls from people with these sort of odd, I'm going to say broadly speaking, digital transformation, but not really just sort of digital strategy type of jobs. Like let's figure out programmatic, let's figure out Facebook apps, let's figure out any one of those things. At what point did you feel that you had amassed enough experience on your own to say, okay, you know what? We're going to incorporate, we're going to formalize this, and I'm going to see through my original vision of starting an ad agency and, and empathy was born out of that. The first iteration of the shop was more opportunistic, like most, most things are in business than it was planned, if that makes sense to you. So it was more an opportunity where I really had someone, uh, a client, who sort of came to us and said, we want you to just take over and take ownership of this media buy completely. And at the time with my partner, um, I said, listen, we can do this. You can do this chunk and I can do this chunk. Uh, and it was split. And that'll be the thing that we sort of do. Um, so it be, it was, a, most things with business I find are, um, it was more out of opportunity. Right. I was already doing what I was doing, um, but that was sort of the very, very first iteration of it. Did yeah. you ever look at your independent consulting work, though, and go, you know what? This is going pretty well. Maybe I don't need the added stress of putting together a, a formal ad agency like the way we're going right now. I'm happy with it. I like the pace. The money is good. Maybe I don't need to go all the way and add those additional stresses. No. No, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm being really blunt about this, but no, but that those aren't stresses to me. That's the fun of the job, right? As much as, um, like my friend Mickey says, there's two types of business owners. There's the, 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 the artists, the craftsmen, and then there is the visionary type of business owner. There's the people who love the craft and I love the craft of advertising. Uh, but part of me also resonates with that other, other side, which is I love the art of building something, building a business. That's not a headache to me. Like that's not a stress stressor to me, building a business, finding the right people, setting a vision, you know, selling good ideas or talking to clients about really, really good ideas, the opportunity to work on different brands and, and, and do stuff that's relevant, that's exciting for me, that all of that and putting together the team and the systems to actually build that, all of that is, that's kind of my art, right? Like that's my craft, if you want to call it that. So you call yourself uh, an operations guy? Because that's a lot of operational work. It's a lot of vision work too, though, right? That, that's it true. Is. It does. It's a lot of vision work too. So it's, it, 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 you got to kind of be in that balance, right? Like, yeah, there's a ton of operational stuff in it for sure. But at the same time, there's a lot of vision in it too. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily sort of say I'm an ops guy versus a vision guy, but I think what, what excites me now is this building this shop or just building this, this entity, um, that allows me to produce work that I like, um, that, so the, yeah, I'm, and I see, I see that a lot in like freelancers in consultants, right? Where they're like, excuse me, I don't need the headache 
I don't need the headache to, you know, hiring and, and training and process. That's all. I want to do the work. I want to write. I want to buy media. I want to design. I want to direct whatever your discipline is, right? Um, and I've had those conversations. I've had those conversations with, with, with a lot of freelancers, um, but I, I don't relate to that in that sense. Like, I don't look at that and say like, oh, hiring and stuff is a headache. Uh, or it's because I enjoy that. I enjoy talking to people, right? Like I, I enjoy having a conversation with people sitting down in a job interview and saying, what is it that you want from your career, right? And and then having a having sort of a middle ground where I say, listen, I, there is a chance I might be able to give you what you want and what you need. You give me what I want and what I need. Uh, and then you can, we can make something fun happen. Um, I genuinely am interested in um in the people whether it's clients or employees and i want to know their stories i want to know what makes them click and i want to see if i can help them click that I, I don't know does that sound naive i don't know no it doesn't sound naive at all but w- tell me where the name empathy came from like were you sitting on that this whole time waiting to start the agency or was that something that kind of came up as you were as you were building out the agency there's an interview, and I'm not comparing myself to him. Like, do, do not mistake that. But there's an interview with Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> where, where the, the the interviewer in the '90s asked, like, "Where is the, what does Pulp Fiction mean?" And he's like, "Well, it just means whatever you want it to mean. Um, it means everything and nothing." So that that's that is such of, a Tarantino answer, right? It's exactly. It's and I'm and God, I'm not. I am nowhere near you know, in, in his fear of work or or his sort of uh, grandeur. But it was a little bit like that. It's like empathy is like if you ask people, my our clients or our staff what it means, it just kind of means something a little bit different to everybody. That that was the whole idea. And, and I kind of like that about it. But in a very real sense, it comes from my personal curiosity about people. That really would have, like, that's what it means to me. And, and and I didn't know that when I named it that, and I'm starting to get to know that over time now, which is, I just genuinely want to know what people's stories are, in a selfish way, um, because I don't know. I don't know because actually, I mean, there's a number of theories I have of why, but it doesn't matter. It's just I just want to know where did you, the thing that you're doing here, this stuff fascinates me. Right. Like, where did you come from? What's your story? Why are you doing the things that you do? What are your hobbies? What is your life like outside of these virtual four walls of an office and this industry? Right. Um, And once I have a good understanding of that, I can sort of build interesting, interesting work and really fascinating relationships outside of that. Um, And that's where that's where the name personally came from. But again, if you ask the, any of our clients or every staff, they'll give you kind of a different answer. And I love that about this place. It's not, it doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. It's just a place where people come and do good work and hopefully work that they like and walk away feeling a little little bit proud about the work they do and, and, and feel like they've grown a bit through the work and learned a few things and maybe even made a few friends. Well, you and Tarantino technically had, you could say, similar professional starts. He was working the video stores, and you were an usher at a cinema. <laughs> I appreciate that you're trying to compare me to Quentin Tarantino, but that is a very big stretch. Thank you very much. No, but it says a lot about 
people who fall into film quite quickly at a young age and immerse themselves in it because look at where you can go from that. Who knows what kind of creative stimulation directly or indirectly comes from that, that leads you to where you are now. I mean, I'm sure if you sat down and thought about it, you could really trace it back and obviously so could he, but I think it says something about people who start off, who are very passionate about movies, get into a job that allows them to really tap into that passion and communicate it with others. And then look at where they are years later. Maybe there is a common thread there for sure. Um, I mean, like the movie business is a bit like the ad business too, right? Like you kind of, you assemble a band of misfits for a while and you do good work and then you kind of you know disassemble the whole operation which is in a way kind of what how advertising works not not necessarily to that drastic level of the movies like but right like it's just you kind of put together a team that you know is partly creative partly a bit analytical because as much as we say movies are all creative work they're also quite analytical like you can you know i'm sure if you ask any studio executives i'll tell you how to finance is in the math behind hollywood works too um and then you kind of put these people together and you have a creative director and you have a vision and you have the you know sort of the arts side of the business and then you have the business people the, the studios and you kind of bring it all together and you make a project work and if, if you're lucky the project is really good and it, it resonates with people and then you kind of walk away from that right like you're you're kind of it's the it's the commerce of 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 arts which is really fascinating right if i can find this podcast from npr i'm going to send it to you it was a couple of years ago and the story was about the director who did the very first fast and the furious film and I think he did the, and I think his next film after that, and it wasn't from the franchise, it flopped completely. And he kind of had to draw back and rebuild himself. And what they've done is they kind of used his story to chart through the success of horror films and how mm. you can make, you can make a high quality horror film on a very small budget. I mean, even if it costs you 5 million to make, and it turns around and only makes 30 or 40 million at the box office you've still done gangbusters and it's kind of charted this gentleman's career about how quickly he can pump out these movies for the studios and just how much more lucrative his career has become on a slightly smaller scale when you're looking at just the budget versus the return on investment versus what he was doing with fast and the furious that's fascinating i can find it i'll send you the link to it and i'm sure npr still got it up it's a really 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 good one let's also talk about teaching because you've spent quite a bit of time giving back and teaching the new generation of marketers or just marketers that want to brush up on their skills. I mean, you've done University of Toronto, Centennial College, and correct me if I'm wrong, right now you're teaching with the Canadian Marketing Association and their chartered marketing designation. Yes, that's correct. So right now I'm at U of T in the, in the CMA. I did Centennial before the pandemic and then into the pandemic the first semester, and that was an in-person class. But at the time, uh, frankly, when they took it online, I was not very comfortable teaching online because I I wasn't used to it and I didn't like it. So I I I kind of quit. And 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 also the business really needed my attention at the beginning of the pandemic, so I didn't have the time. And so right now I'm at U of T and at the at the CMA. I I enjoy teaching. I I really like it. I, I so much of what I have done and how I think. I can directly attribute back to names of teachers and instructors all the way throughout my sort of high school to undergrad to graduate degree. You know, people like Dean Bates, who's been a phenomenal supporter of every every student that he's ever come across. So so I I like that relationship with students. I really enjoy this this um 
this dynamic of of trying to shape people is it's a bit selfish right like at the same time though like it's also like a really nice recruitment tool to be honest with you um you know you get for as someone who's building a business like it's not a bad thing to have a uh, have a, a sort of a finger on the pulse of up and coming talent uh and the other thing about it is that it's a um i like to hear myself speak so it's a good opportunity for me once a week to just ramble on about stuff because otherwise I'd have to do it at the dinner table and then my wife who's, uh, who's not at all in the business would be like, well, I don't know what you're talking about and I don't care. Yeah, but right. it's also a good opportunity to sharpen your skills though because you want to make sure you produce a quality product or a quality education for the students because it forces you to teach yourself. And then I find that anytime you deliver something like that over and over again, you get better at it. Like I found in university, the best way I could study was get on top of the curriculum. And if you have some of your peers that need a little bit of tutoring or just explanation, pull them aside and just repeat it over and over again. And then I found that that was the best way for me to learn. So if anything, what I think you're doing is you're sharpening your skills. The students are so smart these days too, right? Like the young talent that's coming through the industry is phenomenal. Um, These folks have obviously all the access to all the information, all the theories, uh, and they are sharp. They're coming to the table with ideas. Like we didn't have ideas like that um, because we just like it weren't available to us, right? Like the art of advertising wasn't available to everybody for the longest period of time, right? It was been sort of a closed industry, but it is now, and that's the, that that's great because again, these these young folks are having great ideas they have the charisma and the the courage to have the idea and to bring it to the table in a meaningful way and to your point that you get to sharpen your skill um by repeating yourself but you also learn so much um sometimes i'll be i'll say stuff and they'll they'll point out to con like sort of contrary examples but but what about this and I have to stop myself in my tracks. I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm gonna have to look into that one. Um, or when you just do ideation sessions and tell them like, what are the, what's the type of work that you guys are looking into? What's the type of work that you guys like right now? They bring in some of the ideas and some of the some of the thinking that is uh, phenomenal, right? And you can you get to do that in the classrooms because you're sort of detached from all the fear around your job and your client and all of that, which all exists a little bit in your professional life um, and you're detached from the politics of it all so you just kind of bring your most fluid idea to the table every single time because you can because what are the consequences and somebody just says this is a bad idea and you move on right it's the place to experiment so i'm a huge fan of teaching because i think it's a two-way street and yeah i love it it's a bit of i wouldn't call it a hobby but it's just it's an extension of my work Mo, this has been a wonderful chat. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? Oh, yes, I am. Okay, the campaign you are most proud of. Now, this one's cliche, but everything we work on, everything we work on. I get this sometimes. People say, but I think Mitch Joel was the one who said it to me when I did, uh, when I interviewed him at the beginning of yeah. uh, Media People was, don't make me uh, pick my favorite child. No, yeah, don't. Don't do that. Okay. There's just so much we work on that I'm so proud of. That's exactly. That's a really good. Mitch, smart guy. Your favorite movie? Uh, that's the movie, The Snake in the Eagle's Shadow. 
that Jackie was Chan, Jackie 1978. Chan. Is that what it was? 19, I looked this one up. Yeah. Such, such a good movie. And I've seen it. If I say I've seen this movie 500 plus times, I think I'd be underestimating it. Um, I, like I saw this movie once a day or multiple times a day since like from the age of six to seven, like that one year when I had the VHS, I like just watched it all the time. So the snake, the eagle's shadow. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? I feel like I have to say Quentin Tarantino now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm perfect. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. My follow-up to that, if Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story, what would you call it? Like the tale of many, many cities. I think that would be the idea because I've just been moving around a bunch. Your favorite book? My favorite advertising book, and I'm going to put it in the context of that, is Madison Avenue Manslaughter. I think it's a really smart book. Your favorite song? Oh, that varies all the time, but I'm a huge Metallica fan. Okay, you're on a deserted island, and you can only take an MP3 player with that holds three Metallica songs. What three do you pick? Uh, the Unforgiven 2. Uh, nothing else matters. And uh, whiskey in the jar. No enter Sandman. No, no enter oh. Sandman. Oh no. wow. Okay. Okay. You know we were very That's firm like, on that one. Yeah. No, I'm firm on that one. That's like below top ten for me. It's a good song, but it's just not the top work. I don't think. It's the, it's their most commercial work. It, but that's another podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the best advice you have ever received. So I have this thing where the best advice I ever, I always get is from the people who actually don't give you the advice, right? Like it's 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 look at what people are doing, and then extract the advice from it, right? Like it's it's not necessarily, and I learned that a lot in agencies. It's 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 not, and I know it's rapid fire, and I know I'm supposed to be quick with this, so my apologies. But oh no, it's all good. Keep going. But it's it's this notion that look at all the things that people are doing to people around them and to you and everybody else and then try to identify what are the things that you don't like about that and that's the advice you should take away from right like learn how to behave and lead and and all of those things um, through the people who actually don't teach you right like just be like i don't want to be like that i don't want to do that that thing that that person did made the other person feel bad i don't want to do that Right. Uh, and I think the best advice I've gotten in my career is just people who never meant to give me advice anyways, but they're just acted in a way that I kind of was not in tune with my instinct and with who I was. And I made a conscious decision to not do that. Uh, this is not a rapid fire way of answering your questions. No, it's, it's actually, you know what, it's a great way to answer the question because a lot of people just, they'll look back at some of the advice they've received and just kind of imparted in this podcast. But this is an interesting thing because what you're saying to people is, is that you're getting advice around you all the time indirectly. And if you're paying attention, you could learn things that you otherwise wouldn't have learned. Yeah. Right. Like, like save 20% of your paycheck. Like, I don't know. That's, that's decent yeah. advice, I guess. But I, I really try to learn from everybody, whether they mean to teach me something or not. Right. I mean, one thing is like, again, I moved around a lot of agencies. I, I saw a lot of agency leaders. So over the time, I started to make a mental note of like, what kind of agency leader do I want to be? And a lot of that came out of what kind of agency leader do I not want to be? Right. And that's the advice, quote unquote, that I was given. And yeah, it wasn't. It, yeah, it's not a fortune cookie advice, but it's just more like be observant. My signature closing question. If you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why?
I'd be movies, I think. I'd be doing something with movies. Totally not surprised about that. Resurrecting the type of kung fu cinema that you appreciated from the 70s and 80s. And you're still trying to keep that that theme and tone with it and that feel without having it ruined by 4K or 8K high definition. Oh, that's so difficult. That would be a challenge, right? Because it I think be. that would you're right. Like 8K would completely ruin it because it, it was it was fun because it was blurry and fake in a way. And it wasn't blurry, but you know what I mean, right? Like the the, the details weren't important, but the acrobatics were. But the but once you add in the details, like have you if you ever watched like old nineties shows on like four K, you're like, Oh man, this is crazy. Yes. Yes, I have. And like, even some of the movies from like the early two thousands that they redid in four K and high definition. I remember I said this to one person and they looked at me a kind of weird was I had rewatched Michael Bay's Transformers in like high definition on Blu-ray. And I felt that because it was so high definition, even though I know that the Transformers and the Autobots weren't real, I felt that because it was so crystal clear. It looked more like it had been computer generated than yeah. if I had watched it in standard definition. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, it's, yeah. And so I'm going to say one thing about this conference, just because we're on this and, and go for it. But it's, it's as much as of a Kung Fu movie buff I was, I was never a Bruce Lee fan. I was surprised you hadn't brought him up because I look, I was, I mean, I watched Enter the Dragon a number of times. I had it on yeah. VHS and I was actually quite surprised to see that Jackie Chan got his start as being an extra in Bruce Lee movies, specifically, what was it? Fist of Fury. He was an extra and then he was an extra in Enter the Dragon as well. But I was, I'm like, this is strange. He hasn't brought up any Bruce yeah. Lee films. I see because as much as Bruce Lee brought Kung Fu to mainstream cinema, which was a fantastic feat. I particularly enjoyed sort of Jackie Chan, Jean-Claude Van Damme, uh, because of the extreme acrobatics in their Kung Fu movies. And then later on, Jet Li. Like, early Jet Li work was like that, too. It was about the acrobatics, right? Versus, for Bruce Lee, it was, you know, I'm not saying the fight scenes were any less than Jackie Chan's or anything like that, but it was sort of the, it was sort of the street fight, but with a Kung Fu flair. And a little bit of gymnastics. And it was all filmed in camera. You knew that there weren't yeah. very many special effects layered on. Like, I'm sure there was some wire fighting here and there. But for the most part, it was like, you've got to master it. And you see that, too, with Jackie Chan in the end credits. He'll do simple things like a backflip on Rumble in the Bronx. And he'll land right. on his face. It's like, there was nothing <laughs> yeah. there to protect him. It's like, take two. And, and the cinematography. Like, the, the camera movement and angles in those old, like, even old Jet Li movies... The camera is still, it's about, it's about the acrobats. Yes. I, I like that you brought that up because sometimes the camera moves so quickly in these modern American films that I find that the fight Disney. sequences lose their effect. You're just like, I can't make out what's going on. Kind of like when people complained about Game of Thrones in the last season, just being too visually dark that they couldn't make things out. Right. Yes. I agree with you there. So it's just like, if you, again, you watch any of those old movies and it's, it's like the camera moves what it needs to, to like sort of you know, frame things properly. But for the most part, like the most camera movement is like when Jackie Chan has like an intense moment of like anger and then it zooms in on his face. Yes. And then like that quick zoom thing they do. Like that's the most the camera will move in the entire movie. The rest of the time, they just put it like, they, I, I joked with my sister. I'm like, Jackie Chan movies are like the way my dad used to use his camcorder at like family events. <laughs> it's just like, he just kind of puts on the tripod 
and then you'll just leave it for four hours and then stuff happens and then like for two hours of it somebody will just come and sit in front of it and not notice that they're in front of the camera so like Jackson movies are a little bit like that it's just like you kind of place the camera in the scene and then let the scene happen there's a scene in rumble in the bronx not rumble in the bronx enter the dragon that mirrors exactly what you said it's it's the scene where Bruce Lee finally fights that antagonist and the guy's got about at least 50 to 100 pounds of muscle on him. Yeah. And he takes him down onto the ground and then he's making the face and he leaps and the camera goes into slow motion and he jumps on him. You can tell that when he lands on him, it seems like his foot lands on his throat and he breaks the guy's neck. You never actually see that happening, but it's just focused in slow motion on Bruce Lee's face and they're dragging out the sound effect where he's like, yeah. And then you just, I think you hear the crack and he turns his head like that. Exactly what you said, where they're trying to capture the emotion of that moment or of the fight scene. And that's all it is. And I, and I love that. And I think we've kind of, uh, I think like the, the born movies were the only ones where they still had that capture, um, a little bit more, but we've kind of, yeah, it'd be hard to recreate that, right? Like that level of just pure athleticism. Well, Quentin Tarantino, if you're listening. Don't retire yet because you did, he did look, he resurrected the Western genre and, and really, really injected a lot of the stuff we saw from the Clint Eastwood and John Wayne eras into things like the hateful eight and Django and chain. So, Hey, let's take another practice. If anyone could pull it off, it could be him. He would get out his, what is it? A 45 millimeter. And he would go yeah. and he would shoot it that way. Like an old Kung Fu movie. Yeah. I would exactly. love to, I would see that. I would he, definitely see that. And I think he kind of tried to do that with kill bill to a certain degree. Yeah, in a way, in a way, I think it was a bit too stunty for me, Kill Bill, as a movie. It was my least favorite Trentino movie. Really? Yeah, Kill Bill was it, it was a bit too stunty, right? And I mean, yeah, it it was a sort of a it was a caricature of a Tarantino movie to me. See, for me, it's a toss up between The Hateful Eight and Inglorious Bastards. And one of the reasons I really enjoyed The Hateful Eight is because most of that film took place on that single set in that cabin. Like there were other scenes yeah. outside of that. And I think it takes it takes a lot for a director to basically take what I said was I said to my wife, because she's very big into cinema. She's got a film degree. He basically took a stage play, what could have been a stage play and turned it into a proper movie. And most of the movies concentrated on this single set. And it's very easy to lose the audience and go, they're still in this cabin. But he didn't. He kept finding different ways to bring the audience back and reinvent that scene. Absolutely. So you said that that's your top two for favorites or I'd say for favorites for Tarantino, that and Inglorious Bastards. And yeah, I would tend to agree. I would tend to agree. Maybe Reservoir Dogs. That was another good one, too. Yeah, but like it's sort of those are the top three for me. Although the one last Tarantino story that I will say is we went and saw. Oh, to answer your question, <laughs> we, I went to the, the last movie that I saw before the pandemic. I now remember what it was because I didn't see it or I saw it in half. It was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I missed the last 10 minutes because my mom-in-law was watching our newborn or, or my, my daughter, my first one. It was the first night that we had left her alone with someone and she was crying very much. And my mom-in-law ended up calling us and we had to leave the theater to go get her. So I never saw the last 10 minutes of that movie, which is like apparently the best 10 minutes of the movie. And it's a long movie. And it's a long it's movie. A so we long movie. all of it. It was like 15 minutes <laughs> at the end. We had to like, oh no, I don't want to go. But it's like, yeah, kid's crying. We got to go. <laughs> Mo, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Really, really enjoyed our chat. This was a fun chat. Thank you so much. That's it for today's show. 
For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.